0: that we are able to render unto Him, and truly this opportunity, this time set aside on the Lord's Day morning for us here at Pippin, beginning at the 1030 hour, allows us in fact to offer that homage and worship unto God. Although it was mentioned a few moments ago, certainly it would be in order for us to continue to think about some upcoming events in terms of the gospel meetings in the area. Uh, my family and I would certainly beseech your prayers on our behalf as as we begin to think about that gospel meeting at the Bloomington Spring Congregation, which Brother Ted announced a few moments ago. It begins some two weeks from today and continues through Wednesday night of that week. So there will be a guest speaker here among our very talented and, and well-prepared men. But certainly, if you would, continue to think about us and in, in your prayers for the efforts in that meeting. And if you have opportunity, come and be with us. This past Thursday night at the Holiday Congregation, several of you were able to come be with us there. And my family and I really appreciate your support and your encouragement to us and of us. Interestingly enough, following that week of gospel meeting at the congregation at Bloomington Springs, uh, there will be a, uh, another gospel meeting at a congregation in Wilson County, uh, just outside Lebanon, there a little piece, and I'll be the speaker for that as well. So let's continue to to pray, if we would, not only for those meetings, but all the gospel efforts in our, in our area. And I'll have more to say about that latter one, perhaps next next Lord's Day morning. It's at the Leeville Church of Christ there in Wilson County. Today we come to the last lesson in our series of studies in the Book of Hebrews. As you can see from the number, this is now our 18th lesson in this series. We have attempted to look at some of the salient and very penetrating and compelling messages to be found in this noble New Testament book. We've been challenged time and again to appreciate that message to those beleaguered saints of the first century and how it is so timely and so vital for you and me yet today as well. As we have looked at some of the things in this book, I thought in summary about as brief as I could think of a way to write it. It's interesting that the superiority of Jesus has been certainly one of the themes of the book. The better way of Jesus, the better way here, the only way to a better life hereafter. And as we've looked at that better way, we have noted that certainly there have been instances and occasions in which the thinking has been deep and profound. The author has brought us back to the Old Testament on many occasions, and from that Old Testament has set before us timeless lessons of the tabernacle, of Melchizedek, of Moses and Joshua, and we should always appreciate the power of those lessons and also the applicability of them. You and I live sometimes in a world that frowns upon the Old Testament, thinking it's not useful, it's unimportant, it's not applicable. But they're mistaken. Those lessons and things contained in the Old Testament are there for a reason, and they're there for a purpose. The Holy Spirit didn't waste His time preserving it for us today. In 39 amazing books we have found on many occasions lessons that you and I should make use of today in order to live in the way that we should. That brings us to perhaps one of the opening thoughts of a major way in our lesson this morning, having to do with that deepness and that profoundness. One of the things that God ever places before us is this thought. No matter how profound or deep, a particular passage or chapter may appear, we must always understand it's applicable. There are things in it that can be applied to your life and mine. And I've listed for us some thoughts about that that should assist us in that appreciation. In Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, after making note of the marvelous magnitude of faith, that which was exemplified in so many noble and honorable characters of the Old Testament, we find these salient statements. Wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight and every sin that's before us and run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you know the conclusion of that passage? it wasn't enough to notice the faithfulness of those characters just mentioned. He said, now you apply that faith day by day as you look into Jesus and live, setting aside every weight in the sin and live properly, godly, and rightly before God. And I thought that would be an appropriate way to close this book and to close this study by noting how the author does that so wonderfully in chapter 13. In many ways, as you come to Hebrews 13, you come to not only some closing thoughts and concluding admonitions, but some facts and features that you and I must keep in mind if we are to be made perfect before God. Note again the title taken from verse 21 of chapter 13 is this, Make You Perfect in Every Good Work. The whole purpose of Hebrews was so that those Hebrew Christians could be made perfect in every good work. Along the way, they'd been told many things that may have seemed deep and profound, but the whole purpose of it all was that you Hebrew Christians would continue to be and remain perfect in every good work. And may I submit, that's just as needful for the people in church today as it was for them then. We need to be made perfect in every good work. And we need to do that as we apply day by day some of the things to be found in chapter 13 of this book. We certainly will not in our limited time this morning be able to look at all that's in the 13th chapter. There's just too much of it. But I've selected what seem to be a few high points and highlights that we will give some consideration to over the next few moments. Will it be remiss not to make mention of some of the ways the New Testament encourages us to always apply what God says in His Word? It's not enough just to know it or to be mindful of it, but to actually implement it in our life. How was it that James put that point in James 1.22, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Can we not hear James echoing that thought to us? Randy, be a doer of the word. Don't just hear and listen, but put into practice and do. We notice the Lord taught in Luke 9.23, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, there is an involvement that regards first to the open, conscious denial of self with the following matter of first appreciation of the Lord and pursuit of His way. Having made those statements and said those things, what might be perhaps a few of the things in Hebrews 13 that might challenge us today? I would suggest we begin in the fourth verse of the chapter. Even though this certainly isn't the opening thought in the chapter, the verse is so vital not only for us at the Pippin Church, it's vital for our country, and it's vital for our society, and it's vital for the world in which we live. Marriage is honorable in in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Just a few simple statements, I think, will bring to the forefront the reasons to why thoughts like that are so important for us today. You and I could well imagine reading that in some kind of modern-day article written by a conservative gospel preacher, but yet this was written in the first century. They needed proper teaching on marriage then just as much as you and I in our society need to set it forth today. Marriage is honorable in all. We live in a time when marriage is undergoing a rather difficult battle. There are many who are against it. There are many who think it's old-fashioned and outdated. There are many who think it is not a proper foundation for a society in the 21st century. And there are some in the highest echelons of our American government who feel this way. Marriage is having a difficult time right now. Look at just a few statistics that might set the thought before us. First of all, we're aware that this past week, you may have seen it on the television or at least heard it on the radio, it was Gay Pride Week. There were parades all over our country. Los Angeles, Boston, New York, Chicago, Denver, you name it. Over 300,000 were in attendance at the one outside Chicago. Notice the name, Pride. There are individuals who take great fortitude and actually public pride in the reality of the lay, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. So much so that they laugh at marriage. ha! Huh. As the Bible describes it, it is not suited to the desires and things that would meet for a recognition of happiness in the human family. Our children are faced with this, textbooks include it. There are those teachers who stand before them and because the state says so, they'll teach this. Marriage is having a hard time. In fact, as if that isn't enough, we will also are aware of some of these statistics. In an article in USA Today, in fact, only two years ago now, it made this statement that in the year 1977, there were one million couples, men and women at least, who were living together unmarried in our country. One million. By the time we reached the year 2006, 2006, so you notice that's only not too many years later, that number had skyrocketed to over five million. 1 million to 5 million in a period of what? Less than three decades. And as if that isn't startling enough, go one year further and the number had increased to 6.7 million. That's a 400% increase from 1977 to 2006. And it's another 28% increase from 2006 to 2007. Couples choosing to live together without being married using to try to wage and to set forth that which would ordinarily be viewed as an acceptable home without having been properly married. As I said before, marriage is having a hard time. I mentioned earlier that the highest echelons of our federal government, in fact, are in support of the two things I've just listed to you homosexuality in terms of marriage on the one hand, and in fact individuals having any degree of liberty they so choose and still call it marriage. Our government, by and large, supports it with full endorsement. It is you and I today, though, who revisit Hebrews 13, 4, where it says marriage is honorable. We need to ever keep in mind the honor that accords to scriptural biblical marriage. It is an honorable estate. It is something upon which God smiles. It is something upon which he finds his highest approval and fortitude. Marriage is honorable in all. To each of us that are older, who are married, may we cherish the marriage that we have as a scriptural one that you and I have entered into with our own free choice and decision, but yet an institution set forth by God. May we appreciate all the beauties and benefits that go with it and the blessing that it involves. To those perhaps who are yet unmarried, appreciate also the respect that marriage deserves. May you and I perhaps in the days to come See the time when maybe America will again respect marriage for the way God endorsed it and the way He fashioned it and created it. And may we find a group of individuals as lawmakers who will lift her high as God designed it. For marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So many times in the scriptures marriage is lifted to her highest position. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we notice that when God fashioned, created Adam, that he observed in Genesis 2.18 that something wasn't good. It wasn't good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. In recognition of that issue and problem, it was God who brought a deep sleep upon Adam, and from his side, he removed a rib, and with that rib, he fashioned a woman. He fashioned that help me that would be perfect and suitable for him. God brought her to him, and it was then that Adam said, "This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." And then God had the final say in Genesis two twenty four. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh as God made that marriage pronouncement, marrying Adam and Eve, and thus setting the stage for the entirety of the bedrock of society, the family, the husband and wife, we notice how beautiful it was. Untarnished with the perversity that man has proclaimed, untarnished with the whimsical fancies that man thinks he can guide his own way, marriage in its simple beauty was one man for one woman for life. And that's the way God intended it. With the opening statement of that passage, we may well recall Proverbs 18.22, where on that occasion the wise man Solomon declared, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And wasn't it Jesus in John chapter 2 who graced the presence of the marriage in Cana of Galilee with his presence? The Lord was there. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, we find the apostles were themselves married. You see, one could go on and on by noting God doesn't frown upon and look down on marriage and consider it a second-class way to live. It is an honorable way to live. May we thus as parents, grandparents, and older ones seek to instill in our youth and our children how respectful they should be of marriage to ever approach it rightly, to enter into it with full knowledge of all the duties and responsibilities that it entails. It is an honorable state. It is a time when a man and woman, as set forth by God, choose to become one flesh by binding themselves together to a law of God and to each other for life. And as they do that, they can help each other on the way to heaven. To any children born to that union, they have the discreet responsibility to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Marriage is an honorable estate. But the verse closes with a very stern warning. Whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Isn't it amazing to note the contrast? Whereas marriage is honorable, This kind of free sex, no matter how it is pursued, be it homosexual, be it those that live together, either way it's fornication and the Hebrew writer says, make no mistake and be not deceived, God will judge it. When you and I think about the homosexual perversion, the parades that have gone on around our land and lifting it seemingly to such a state of highness, Wasn't in Leviticus 20.13 that God there said that when a man lies with a man as he does with a woman, it's an abomination. Both of them have committed an abomination. They, both of them, shall be surely put to death. That was God's law for dealing with this under the Mosaic regime of the Old Testament. In Israel, they were not to be permitted to live. In the New Testament era, in Romans chapter 1, Notice Paul's sacred statement with respect to the way in which God views homosexuality then, under the character of the law of Christ. Paul noted, It is that which is unseemly, unnatural, and it is thus not approved. To look at all of that reminds us that we must be strong. The Bible remains for us the matter of truth when it comes to the honor of marriage. And may we have that opportunity and take the one that's given to us to speak about honor as it relates to the law of God's marriage. In fairness, as we come near the close of that slide, when it says that whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge, we notice two especial classes of sexual sin. Whoremongers is from that word pornea, same word that's often translated fornication, any kind of illicit sexual activity. And then particularly adultery is mentioned as well, relating to that between individuals where at least one of them is married to somebody else. And thus, in each of these instances, we see again how particular God is about his laws of sexuality. Free sex is not approved by God as far as a society enjoying it by people who live together and take the opportunity any time they so choose to enjoy whatever they wish with whomever they please. Again, one's wife or as if it's the case of a lady, her husband is the only one with whom she should be enjoying sexual favor and it is in that arrangement and it alone where these matters are to be enjoyed with the honor that God would give it. This is one of the ways the Hebrew writer chose to conclude this book. They needed that lesson today and how desperately we need it still. But what about another in this same chapter? Taken this time from verse 17. We notice that one of the features that's provided for us to think of here seems so very different, but yet it is also needful when it comes to the vitality of the church as she was designed and set forth by God. Verse 17 reads, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. In the infinite mind of God, it was his decision to set forth his church with elders and with deacons. There certainly are those such as myself who have the privilege to preach. But preachers and elders are very different. The New Testament uses different terms for them, although the denominational world has confused them and used this word pastor in such a way that it is unknown in the Bible to where they call a preacher a pastor. It is not so A pastor is a shepherd, a bishop, an elder. And elders, in fact, have an exceedingly special role to play. I would ask that at least for a few moments we give some thought to the role of the eldership and to what is said here in Hebrews 13, 17 with respect to them. In Philippians 1, 1, we call, we notice on that occasion as Paul addressed the church in Philippi, he especially mentioned the bishops and the deacons those men who were elders. Elders are the overseers of the flock, First Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. It is they who are addressed in Acts twenty twenty eight, in which he says, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. We understand then that in the mind of God, the elders, according to the working of the Holy Spirit, have been given that precious delegation of authority to oversee the local congregation. Although there are some congregations in our area that we know of that do not have elders, it is the plan and will of God that each of His congregations have elders, at least two men, who meet the qualifications set forth in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. And among those qualifications, and there are over 20 of them in total, but among those qualifications, I chose these two to specifically list. Men who are thoroughly acquainted with and knowledgeable of the Word of God. So much so that in Titus 1 verse 9 it is said of them that they would be able with sound doctrine to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So those who would in fact have erroneous ideas, false impressions, tendencies that are not right there would be men of strength and fidelity and courage and bravery who with their knowledge of the scriptures could convince and exhort with book, chapter, and verse. That's what our elders are supposed to do. And in fact, as you look at some of those other qualifications, also men who have led their own households well and thus who have been given a test and have exemplified themselves to be dutiful men of leadership Who could lead us on the primrose pathway to eternal glory? And it is on that occasion and with words like that that we're told, Obey them and have the rule over you. The eldership, you see, as it's put in place by God with a delegation of the authority of heaven, is not a take-it-or-leave-it arrangement. It's not as if a congregation can simply look at their elders and say, I don't particularly like that. I think I'll do what I want. I think I will simply go about my business and ignore what they've said. You and I should appreciate we will be weighed in the balances and found wanting for any such opinions. Obey them that have the rule over you. And an elder is striving thus to set forth the truth of God and to lead those by way of the example of faithfulness in his life as well as a turning to the Holy Scriptures we should with excitement fall in line and follow the leadership and the path that they have set and to do that will lead to a strong and vibrant congregation one not only following the pursuit of their example but who strives to be all that God would have them to be And hence the eldership is, again, lifted so highly in the New Testament, just like we noted marriage was a few moments ago. In fact, in 1 Timothy 3, 1, If any man desire the office of a bishop, when men, because of their love for the truth and their love for the souls of others, accept that opportunity and privilege of being an elder, they take upon themselves a great responsibility. We should be appreciative of their willingness to do that. In fact, that willingness that they have, it is a great responsibility to shoulder and to burden. For they must be those who watch for our souls. Did you note the language with me? Watching for my soul and yours. And in the the honesty of their love for me and their love for the truth. When they see something in error in my life, Out of love, they come to me and ask me about it. Perhaps rebuke me if that's the need. Correct me with love and with tenderness, but always with an uncompromising devotion to the truth. That's what an elder is supposed to do. And may we thank God in the day of judgment that a man loved me enough to do that. A man who saw an error in my life and called me on it. Any of us should feel the same way. Obey them that have the rule over you. And thus, when an elder takes the time to question or to at least ask about, we shouldn't view it as prying. We shouldn't view it as none of their business. They're watching for our souls. It is their business. Now, they're not certainly in the business of gossip and talebearing, And we can be thankful that in their earnestness to do that which God desires... Their earnestness is for spiritual matters in your life and in mine. Some thoughts found in this chapter with respect to those matters perhaps could be extended greatly. But in quickness, we should well note 1 Thessalonians 5.13. We should respect highly those men who are elders. In fact, the very word in Greek is to esteem them highly. We should appreciate them, compliment them, and thank them for job's well done. Here at Pippin, we're blessed, as I mentioned, with elders. Though many congregations in our area do not, we have three of them. Our elders attempt to lead us in the way we should go. They, of course, make decisions in regard to what takes place in in our fellowship. And as they make those decisions, they don't make them with haste, but always with prayer, always with concern for all of us, always with a desire to do what God would have them to do. As I mentioned, their decisions aren't always easy. As we esteem them highly, may we notice again verse number 17. Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Wouldn't it be a sadness? Wouldn't it be a tragedy for an elder as he gives account? have to do so with grief because a brother or a sister who once was faithful but wandered away and would, and would not accept the rebuke and encouragement to come back to the fold. There will be elders that will have to give that kind of grieving report over a wayward brother or sister. Or perhaps an elder who as he, or she, as he thinks about the nature of the work of the church and those who fail to submit to it Perhaps they utterly fall away completely from the Lord. That will be such a sad report to have to give. As we understand verse 17 and think about the blessing we have of our eldership, that does lead us to our third and final lesson of the day. Taken from verse number 21 and 22. Very near the closing of this chapter, very near the closing of the book of Hebrews. Now the God of peace that brought again from from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Suffer the word of exhortation. Isn't it somewhat telling that that's the way the Hebrew writer chose to close this book? Suffer the word of exhortation. Literally, that phrase means to endure admonition, to endure encouragement, to endure exhortation. As we've noted in our study of the Hebrew letter, at times it has been very direct, and at times it has been so much so that one may have thought it stepped on their toes too much. Remember, they were told, by now you ought to be teachers, but yet you still need to be taught the fun little basics of the truth. In chapter 10, they were warned, do not forsake the assembly. That's only two of many others, again, that they were warned sternly. But notice it says, suffer the word of exhortation. Don't get defensive and get your feelings hurt. But let God prompt you in heart to allow you to change to be what He wants you to be. Endure these words of exhortation and make proper response to them. If that involves public repentance, do it with haste and with love. If it involves a personal change in heart, do that. But suffer the word of exhortation. Each of us today need to have words like that on our mind too, don't we? Being humans, I suppose none of us take a liking to having someone correct us. We like to be right. We don't always like it when someone points out our errors and our faults, even if it's our spouse. We may not always take it the way we should, but just as surely as we can think here, he said, suffer the word of exhortation. When a person in kindness points out a mistake, a fault, something that should be corrected, May we approach that with a desire to endure the matter that's been stated and to make the proper changes, whatever that involves. As you and I think about suffering the word of exhortation, look at just a few of the passages that could be listed. We could well notice in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, as Paul drew near the close of that five-chapter book, he pointed out to them, See that you do the good. As they were to then examine themselves and pursue in strength that which was good, that might have involved changes on the part of the Thessalonians. In 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, if any man say he has no sin, he is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Notice also in James 5.16, confess your faults one to another. We each have those imperfections, those faults, those things that need to be corrected. When an elder or someone else points those out, may we respond by suffering the word of exhortation, taking that which has been said and using it in a way that would lead to that which is better, or perhaps if the need arises, to make a public response to others that they would know of those changes. In fairness, two final points. It is in this regard that one might think about the example of Paul and Peter. Isn't it interesting that Paul himself rebuked Peter because Peter made a mistake? In fact, he was to be blamed and he was in the wrong in Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. Here was an apostle of the Lord who had made a public mistake. Isn't it interesting that Paul publicly rebuked him corrected him into the face and the presence of others why so that they would know about the critical importance of the mistake and they could also be aware of the fact that if Peter had made the mistake they could do the same and it all needed to change their thinking in that regard we know that Peter accepted that in the way he should have Because near the end of things, in 2 Peter 3.15, he said, Our beloved brother, Paul. He didn't look down on Paul. In fact, I'm sure he often thanked Paul upon reflection for Paul's courage in his correction of him at the time and place when the correction was needed. Today, as you and I think about suffering the word of exhortation, may we also recognize that others can sometimes have those words of exhortation that we need. And with that said, in summary to the lesson today, we've learned the following things. In these 18 lessons, the book of Hebrews has shown us the better way of Jesus. It's always the better way, though the world may not think so, and though many may often doubt it, it's always the way that's best. And today, in particular, we have seen that marriage is honorable, and that we should consider it so and help others do the same. Secondly, we've noted the importance of obeying the elders and submitting to them because they watch for our souls in the activities that they do as gospel servants and ministers. And finally, we've noticed from verse 21, suffer the word of exhortation, having a tender heart of compassion and response to that which may well involve change in our life. Though most don't like change, sometimes we need it. Quite often here at Pippin in our prayers, we utter statements to the effect of, Help us choose our changes for us. When we pray that with earnestness and honesty, we are praying then that we will be molded in life and that we will have a mindset to make those changes that God teaches us we should make. Today, it may be that there is more and more in the sound of my voice who needs to make a dramatic change for the better from the perspective of eternity. If you're not a Christian today, a faithful Christian, there will never be a better day on the 27th of June, 2010, for you to become a faithful member of the body of Christ. As you do that, your life will be changed forever. If you've never obeyed the gospel initially, believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of the sins in your life, confess His great name as the Son of God, and be baptized. We could assist you in that confession and baptism ever so quickly. If you have become a Christian but have lost your way of faithfulness, you have allowed other things to distract and defocus, you come back to your first love this morning. We pray for you. We'd be happy to do it. And if we could do any of that, we would only ask you to let us know in a way we could help while together we stay and while we sing.